Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast. On today's episode, we're really excited to be talking to Mike Keating about the Lloyds market, the future of Lloyds, and where 2021 might take our industry. Welcome, Mike. Good morning, Sarah. So we've had a a number of chats previous to today with some really interesting conversations, and I'm hoping just to pick up a few of those threads for the insurance industry to hear, because I think they'll be uh, uh, incredibly valuable. So one of the places that I'd like to start, if it's okay with you, is uh, probably the most obvious place, which is what is actually going on in the world, the pandemic, the hardening market, how it's going to affect us and your thoughts, I suppose, around MGAs and and brokers and and insurers and how they can be collaborating really to support the end client? Yeah, well, yeah, a wide, wide, wide sort of topic and subject. So, so if I sort of, if I, if I reverse back to sort of the first lockdown in, in sort of March and I look across the categories across our industry, I think, uh, first of all, MGAs really proved their worth in terms of their ability to be uh, nimble, sort of show innovation and really just continue sort of to trade with their broker partners, obviously on a remote basis, uh, because, you know, the very nature and DNA of an MGA is their their ability to adapt very quickly to sort of changing market and customer uh, sort of uh, uh, conditions. And they've continued on that vein and, and sort of our sort of 150 members, you know, I've spoken to have sort of, been very pleased in terms of how their businesses continue to sort of operate and being both successful in terms of retention levels and and sort of uh, new business. I think brokers also have that great adaptability and, and nimbleness. You know, some of the larger sort of brokers, you know, have bigger challenges because they're very close to sort of being corporate sort of operations, but they adapted. And I think to be fair to the insurers who are probably in this phase, you know, the biggest ships you know, some of those managed to turn those ships relatively quickly. Others sort of struggled. And I think they would concede they'd struggled in that first sort of lockdown. But I believe that they're probably at the right position now, albeit sort of 10, 11 months on. Uh, whereas the market has sort of reset itself into a pandemic type world. And obviously, hopefully, you know, the the market again is now looking post-pandemic, you know, once the vaccines are sort of, are rolled out and and on that theme there will be you know there will be a new reset across the industry you know I, I don't believe in any shape or form that everyone will go back five days a week in the office I don't see that happening I think there'll be a nature of sort of uh three and two or maybe four and one and I think it'll be very very interesting Sarah to see how the sort of you know the beloved sort of square mile and the city stroke Lloyd's you know what that looks like because as we all know, there's a complete ecosystem sort of, you know, dependent on, you know, how it was previously, uh, you know, just even local businesses, which obviously have suffered, you know, without sort of having that footfall and, and that square mile sort of operating in its traditional way. And it's, it's not easy to predict, you know, in terms of how, how that will look, you know, sort of uh, post-pandemic and, and whether it does reset back to what it was before. I think that's extremely unlikely. 
Uh, and I think it will be a blended sort of new ecosystem sort of reflecting how businesses have managed to operate and be very productive, you know, in this last sort of 11, sort of 12 months of a lockdown. Yeah, I think uh, just to pick up on a few things you've said there, I did a podcast last year with Ian Lloyd of iPRISM and we coined, yeah, we coined the term nimbility, which I think (laughs) should absolutely be, uh, make its way into the English dictionary. Uh, The nimbility of brokers and, and the smaller MGAs and smaller brokers is, I think has been uh, really key during this last year's craziness. And I had a really interesting conversation. I've had several interesting conversations with one of the larger brokers um, that we're talking to at the moment about how they used 2020 to basically reset all of their processes. And I'm going to use the word future-proof, but I mean in terms of the changing world, which is global and happening happening at a rate of knots, and, and reset all of their processes and sort of staff training, even right down to CRM systems and the type of management information they can pull out at any one time. And I'm seeing that ha- has happened quite a lot over 2020. And I wonder that mental reframing how that will pan out into 2021, where there will undoubtedly be some changes. And the other thing that I wanted to pick up on is uh, the Lloyd's market. Again, really interesting conversations about the Lloyd's market. I'm learning every day about it. And I'll be interested to see how the pandemic and the course that that's put us on sort of supports the future of Lloyd's changes that are going on in a, a sort of digital transformation as well as as well as other areas as well. So I know you're quite involved as a stakeholder in the, the DARE project. Do you want to give yeah. us an overview of what that is? Well, and- well effect- effectively, you know, the, the DARE project, you know, is, is putting in all stakeholders in regard to delegated authority. And DARE stands for Delegated Authority Reimagined. And the LMA has sort of worked with uh, 6.6 to bring in all stakeholders and effectively to look as to sort of how, you know, DA should be handled sort of... Uh, going forward in the future in a way is that even if you had a sort of blank piece of paper, but I think this project has been particularly good insofar as saying that, you know, this can't just be blue sky thinking. This has to be realistic and relevant and actually sort of deliver, you know, sort of real tangible improvements in terms of, uh, you know, how that business is transacted and removing sort of the unnecessary sort of frictional cost, which uh, a lot of stakeholders in that sort of uh, value chain uh, actually sort of incur. You know, we uh, and I, as representing sort of our members at the MGAA, are a key stakeholder in terms of how that is going to develop. Our members are fully aware of our involvement and we we invited them for comment. We continue to invite them for any comment, observation, and as an association, we'll be providing updates to them as key stakeholders in terms of how that project sort of develops. But uh, it's early days. You know, we had our first meeting uh, last week, I believe, as a stakeholder, you know, work work is accelerating, uh, and I believe we have another update as stakeholders sort of next week. So, so the key thing is, is number one is you know good engagement, and I believe, you know, no doubt the LMA and six point six have got and and expanded, and sure every stakeholder has has been contacted, is involved. Uh, the next phase is obviously the execution of of uh, you know the gathering of those ideas, and critically that constant engagement as we go through the process, so that. So it can be validated and stakeholders continue with their voice. I think that's really important. And uh, if you're happy, I'll put the link to the LMA 6.6 project on here. So anybody that hasn't yet engaged but would like to put their two pence in, they can do so via the website. So I'll make sure that's included. Thank you. Um, 
just talk to me a bit more about that because two of the um, sort of the key areas that they've pulled together stats and 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 insights on on the DARE project is about whether the DA market at Lloyd still has potential to grow, but also uh, that the acquisition costs need to be improved or, or significantly reduced to, to enable that. Can you talk to us about those two particular points? Yeah, it actually, you know, that that I think, if I remember, that, that was a result, I think, around about 250 sort of respondees sort of initially. And what's quite interesting is that 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 effectively sort of underlined the research which the MGA did with Clyde & Co at the back end of uh, 2020, which actually showed that, you know, the, the appetite to continue to do or seek capacity for from MGAs for Lloyds compared to the company market, there's a, there was a preference from our members survey that they would go to the company market. And what was interesting is that when you compared that to the Clyde & Co survey we did with them on our membership in 2019, that reversed the trend. So if you're, if you're looking at it through the lens of Lloyds from our members, what that message is, is that from 2019 to 2020, the company market was seen as a preferential market to go and look to with new ideas and to obtain capacity as to Lloyd's. Uh, now, there's clearly a number of areas as to why, you know, mem- my members see that. One is actually the, the ability to match capacity with risk appetite is seen as very clunky, number one. And number two, obviously, is the acquisition cost, which you've sort of alluded to. So given that that is clear, you know, honest, tangible feedback, you know, it's clear that, you know, a project such as DARE, alongside the other sort of work streams, which, you know, all links to Future of Lloyds to make and continue to make it extremely attractive for both sort of capacity and for sort of Lloyds cover holders, you know, it's right that these projects are in place because you would hope that, you know, you would fuse together, you know, all those stakeholders and come out the other side with with an improvement in a reduction in acquisition costs, which are driven by better processes, better IT, stakeholder involvement. So, so you know, there's a lot of work to be done, without a doubt. I think, you know, there are, there's a real need to demonstrate through the future of Lloyd's in terms of when it reaches its milestones, that, that those milestones which are achieved are sort of, you know, basically proclaimed high, you know, from the hills to say, look, we've achieved this. This is what we've done. This is the impact to you as as people who trade in Lloyd, so they see it as tangible. But as I say, there's a long way to go, you know, but, you know, those milestones are set out and, uh, you know, let, let's hope that sort of, you know, the, the project team sort of, uh, you know, meet those deliverables. One of the um, the sort of ways that I, I know that Lloyd's has changed over, over the pandemic is, is, as everybody else says, it's it's gone from face to face to using a lot of trading platforms. And I know there are about 17 major ones that Lloyd's generally are using. And I was talking to uh, another podcastee uh, in this series. And what he was saying was the sort of friction for the syndicates in looking at the different platforms, because everybody's using different ones, is quite a difficult thing. You know, it's, it's there's friction there. I wonder... Um, because that change has come about so quickly because of the pandemic, that's usually where where the the base, the platforms, the sort of the foundation of the change hasn't been properly built because it's done ad hoc and quickly. I presume that the sort of digital transformation, the trading platforms, all of that kind of stuff is is 
fundamental to the future at Lloyd's and one of the work streams? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you if you look at the operational, and I'm probably oversimplifying it, but if you look at the operational processes in terms of the cover holders, MGAs, you know, you know, in Lloyd's or in the company market, you know, the, the key thing you want in terms of the holding that together is to have a common level of data standards and the transfer of that data being done very frictionless with uh, with no re-keying. Now, that is very simple in terms of saying it, but as you quite rightly point out, when you have a number of different software sort of platforms and, and different IT systems, which all do that quite well, but may not necessarily be talking to each other from that perspective, because that is a competitive market in itself, you know, those sort of platforms, then that brings, you know, a sort of small level of uh, a sort of a challenge in terms of how you get everything going through the same place. But but I think it's it, it, it's there's a clear there is a clear sort of motivation to get it right because you know just coming back to your opening sort of observation around the survey on the website echoing what we did with Clyde and Co for our members you know there's you know it's shouting from the rooftops you know this needs to happen the cost needs to come down we need to remove this acquisition cost and the frictional cost in order for us to to remain competitive uh, and also to provide even more value to our customers and 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 you know you're right you know it's 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 a case of adapt or die i think on this on this one and as with everything there's like stages of the process isn't it let's gather the data let's put the process in, in and that has its own issues and then there's let's realign everybody's mind to this process and sometimes that is is the hardest element to get everybody yeah, on agreed. board agree agree no, yeah, win, a... winning hearts and minds is is absolutely critical. But I think if as long as which they have, I believe, as long as you you canvassed and engaged with all the necessary stakeholders, that's the first point which they've done very successfully. And I think the next thing is you say winning the hearts and minds, and then and then move it to a sort of an executional sort of uh, operational stage. So just on the the Dare project, February twenty twenty one is sort of where they're looking to start building the vision as it were so you've done most of the engagement but engagement is absolutely still open isn't it to people absolutely, that want yeah. to yeah absolutely yeah Fabulous. there's something it's something which the project chairman you know is is very encouraged is is continually encouraging as well as sort of the, the project leader and 6.6 you know in terms of you know any any idea you know there's no such thing as a bad idea or a bad observation at the end at the end of the day and, and uh, it was a very good meeting sort of last week it was a good robust exchange of views uh, from that perspective and, uh, and and long may that continue. And you're still uh, online, nothing's been shifted off course with, with the latest lockdown for sort of the overall vision to be published around March and then... No, presumably- no, again, you know, as as I sit here now talking to you, and there's I've obviously nothing which would suggest that that timeline which is outlined is changing. Fabulous. So uh, expecting good things from the back end of 2021 to start implementation. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So just absolutely related because it's all about the world we're living in at the moment. uh, One of the conversations we had, I believe it was the back end of last year, was about conversations between brokers and underwriters and the type of conversations that really need to be going on there to understand the rating increases that are coming across and how they should best be spread across a portfolio and the implications of that not happening. Can uh, can you uh, sort of 
enlighten us on your thoughts on that yeah so you know you know under the umbrella of sort of the hardening market and the market you know certainly is hardening it's hardening at the back end of 2020 and i i anticipate that it will continue throughout this year and to a certain element of uh, 2022 you know the first thing which hard a hard market does effectively it te- it tests and challenges all relationships so it will challenge a broker's relationship with their capacity or their insurers in terms of you know the strength of that relationship the transparency uh, the collaboration and effectively you know shine a very very bright light on the underwriting performance of that broker's account with the uh, insurers it does very much the same for mgas you know as, as you know mgas are acting as agents of the insurers but again it, it a hardening market again test that relationship especially around portfolios which may be marginal or underperforming uh, from that perspective and of course you know last but by no means least you know brokers own relationships with their with the end customer and if you look at if you put all that together and you try to throw a blanket and some words at what should be done you know words such as engagement consistency you know clear messaging uh, professional advice, you know, testing the fact that you've been talking to your customer, be that the end customer, your insurer partner, your broker, if you're an MGA, you know, on a regular basis. So therefore having a sort of a meaningful breadth and depth relationship, then the the messaging and narrative around rate strengthening, you know, it will be difficult, but shouldn't be insurmountable. Where it becomes insurmountable on that value chain, Sarah, is where you haven't had, you know, regular engagement, collaboration, transparency, you know, good conversations around portfolio, both for growth, both for sort of re-underwriting. If that's been basically silent or passive, I'll probably use the word passive, then when you get into a rate-strengthening market, it becomes ever so difficult because you've, you've, got, you've got no economic describe it you know you've got no cushion of narrative or cushion of conversations you can refer back to we say well remember when we were talking about you know what would happen if this would happen you know you've got enough trust exactly fantastic fantastic phrase you know you've got no bank of trust to use your or to steal your phrase (laughs) uh you know to go back on and that that unfortunately will be a symptom and will be happening in the market currently but again, the professional MGAs, the ones which you know we talked about, which have got a real, real forensic handle on their risk appetite, their risk their their portfolio, their data, their their distribution, you know, who really operate as insurers, you know, but you know, as an MGA, then the hard market is just something else they will absorb, and and they will continue successfully. You know, you know, there'll be some bumps, but those bumps will be be sort of low gradient as opposed to some very high high gradient bumps which uh, uh, those who haven't displayed that in the past you know have to deal with i think there might also be an argument to say that the training and strategic understanding needs to within an organization really needs to be communicated effectively within that organization because again to refer back to one of our previous conversations which i found really interesting was around a lot of the people that 
are in the insurance industry, there's a significant amount that will never have really been through a truly hard market. So trying to understand your job as an underwriter and rating various risks from the strategic point of view, from the broker's point of view, and then coming to a conclusion that is um, not just acceptable, but the best solution to avoid ending up with toxic portfolios and things like that is is, is quite a maybe a key area that organisations should be looking at. I agree. And, and, and I think, you know, Bieber, I know, sort of had a conversation with uh, one of their members yesterday. I know that they're issuing a guide around sort of uh, rate strengthening or premium increases in terms of, you know, top tips in terms of how that's done. So I think that's fantastic work from sort of Bieber from that bit. We as the NGAA, I'll be looking to put on a sort of a, a appropriate webinar around, you know, trading in a hard market, you know, because I think that that's important, especially for people sort of what I would call under sort of, you know, next generation, you know, perhaps, as you say, haven't sort of experienced it from that perspective. But, you know, there are some clear, there's some clear sort of principles, which, you know, if you're engaging properly with insurer or, or your capacity for an MGA, uh, you know, if you're a broker with an insurer, which you can follow. So, you know, if insurers are you know, quite rightly through rate strengthening, are saying that, you know, that, you know, we'd like to see a 20% increase or organic rate increase across your portfolio. You know, one of the skills in doing that is applying that in the right areas insofar that you don't lose good quality business. And, and an insurer will want to work with their brokers and, you know, MGAs to ensure that, you know, by using rate increases as a blunt tool, you don't end up you know, with a, as you quite rightly say, a toxic or underperforming portfolio risk because, you know, good performing business, even in a hard market, you know, will always be very attractive to insurers and to MGAs. You know, it may still carry some rate, but it may not necessarily need to carry the full rate, which is required from from insurers across their portfolio. So it's the way you blend that that increase across your portfolio using your pricing tools uh, your risk, you know, you know, underwriting sort of uh, expertise, you know, still getting to the main objective, but doing it in the right way across your portfolio. And unfortunately, what a hard market also brings, and especially when you're doing it in the way I describe, is, you know, new business, you know, or there is an influx in the market of what I would call poor performing and distressed business, because, you know, that carries significant rate increases you know that and the end customer will clearly then look to try and find alternative less sort of penitive sort of uh, rating or premiums and that for that goes out to the market and so you know the market wards currently see in and will continue to see during 2021 you know poor performing and distressed business because that's just the nature of it Mm. I remember just to pick up on the point around um, training that's going on in the market and uh, you guys looking to put on um, webinars to support that. I remember the Anglia Market Forum in February last year, I think was the last face-to-face CII event that I attended. And David Williams was saying that through AXA, they were starting to push through training to sort of their employees about what a hard market looks like and how you can how you can um, kind of get through it. So that's uh yeah it's, it's happening all over isn't it it's about how uh how much of that actually goes on board and starts to work work its way into well, it, um it, well we we think you know this we think the last hard market was you know and it's a subjective subject but it probably was around 2004 
So, you know, you're still looking 16 years ago. So there will be a sort of significant proportion of people operating in the industry, you know, perhaps who hadn't really experienced a hard market. And actually their their market cycle knowledge will be based really on soft and very competitive premiums and and sort of, you know, pricing pressure being negative as opposed to positive. One of the things you mentioned just a moment ago about the sort of distressed business in the market the effect of that will be huge, particularly, I'd imagine, on the SME market right. in terms of having to cut cover or, you know, there'll be an increase in fraud, that kind of thing. What, yeah. what, what do you see there? Yeah, well, I, I think the, you know, this is, this is where I have great confidence in, in brokers uh, and, you know, and my own members, MGAs, in terms of working together to ensure that managing both price and cover to ensure that those end customers are still adequately covered. And, and I think brokers are fantastic at doing that, you know, especially those who have a very sort of good depth and breadth sort of knowledge of their client. You know, they'll, they'll act as sort of professional advisors to their clients in terms of the program design, you know, and ensure that, you know, if there is a need to try and, let's call it sort of reduced insurance spend, that they'll do that in a very professional way, that that insurance spend may be, more manageable, certainly with a with a recession and post-pandemic, but not hopefully to the extent that it leaves them exposed in regard to sort of coverage. You know, it's a, it's a very, very tricky sort of piece of work and you have to navigate that. But if you, if you do know your customers as you should do, and I'm confident, you know, the majority of UK brokers do that, then, then that will be sort of hopefully end up as a positive conversation. And, and MGAs through innovation, product innovation, uh, again, with their sort of knowledge, technical knowledge to work with their broker distribution, we'll be able to insist in those conversations. I think it sort of opens the door more widely to have the wider risk management conversation where you can really give some practical advice yeah. and tools and help. And I know we've talked about a risk management product that is, you know, quite widely used within the insurance industry, which has incredible benefit to an SME market who, who, who for risk management for them, risk management isn't something that's top priority or, or even uh, really understood properly. So I think that the door's wide open for brokers and MGAs to bring into this space a bit more uh, support for the end client. I think you're right. I think that it, it's it, it's all part of the package of of potential risk risk preventative measures. You know, and you know, a lot of underwriting now is about risk prevention as opposed to post sort of claim sort of uh, addressing problems post-claim. You know, it's all about sort of stopping something happening as opposed to addressing it after it's happened. Uh, And I think that's where risk management sort of packages are sort of absolutely crucial, aligned obviously with the broker's expertise in terms of doing that. Mm. You know, and and that's quite a shift actually sort of, you know, a long time ago when I was underwriting when, when, you know, there wasn't so much about risk prevention. It was oh, we've had a claim, you know, what can we do now to stop it happening again when now we don't want it to happen at all? And, and what can we do to sort of stop it happening? And I think that's, uh, uh, that's, that's quite that's been a significant shift from an underwriting perspective over the last sort of 10 years. I remember a conversation I had uh, with somebody at Bieber, uh, must have been 2019 now, um, and it was with a, uh, with a broker and we were talking about risk management and he said to me, no, I don't do risk management. That's not 
we don't do that. So, you know, this isn't relevant. Right. And I remember thinking then, I mean, that's interesting. Presumably it is so embedded in what you are doing that by default you are risk managers and, and um, anyway, that's just a, a, an anecdotal uh, memory that I thought I'd share with well, you. Well, I think, I think it's a good point because I think, you know, if I put my old insurer hat on, and I suppose certainly in the commercial SME space, I think there's the, and again, this comes down to a relationship, and, it, and it's the same from our MGAs, it's the relationship to ensure that the risk management package which the end customer has purchased, you know, by making that investment themselves, there is an obligation to see that that's reflected in the premium charged and the and the coverage. You know, I think I think there's, you know, and I think insurers are very good at that. But I think you know it's the case of actually, you know, it's probably a subject the subjective value, Sarah, on. I've invested X amount of money into a risk management package, which is great for my business. You know, what value does the insurer see in terms of the MJ seeing its pricing of that investment? And I think that's where, you know, again, coming back to the engagement and the uh, rich conversation between the stakeholders in that, in that particular narrative is very, very important because everyone have, will have a different lens you know, so the the SME will say, well, I expect X amount of of sort of you know reduction through this investment. Insurer may not match that that number, and it and it's for the broker to ensure that both parties come out satisf- satisfied. And the difficulty is, it's very difficult to quantify. Obviously, the the better managed a business in terms of risk, the better risk they are. But how do you quantify that? Uh, how do you actually turn that into a tangible number? And that's I think so. I think coming back to one of our themes, though, the the hard market, you know, the, those SME customers should benefit from those risk management packages in the hard market. So effectively, where there is a, a sort of a tailwind and momentum of uh, rate strengthening, you should be able to refer to your risk management package and say, look, you know, I'm all, you know, effectively, I'm I'm already sort of cushioned myself a little bit from any rate strengthening because. I invested three years ago or two years ago in uh, in a risk risk management package. So that that I think is an important narrative in any any renewal discussions. You know, if they're seen as a as a sort of over and above sort of request for a rate increase. Mm, absolutely. Just continuing on that theme, slightly different direction. Uh, hardening market, um, underwriting performance, uh, global economic crash investment returns, what, what's happening with insurers now? Because they're looking at having to, um, well, very little in terms of investment returns coming in. So you're looking at pure underwriting profit, which is right. not something that is the norm nowadays. No, well, that, well that, you know, that's one of the elements which fuels the hard market. You know, you're right, you know, with, with little or absolutely no, no sort of investment sort of return, then effectively insurers need, you know, if they were – if they were targeting a combined operating ratio between a, a range of sort of 96 to 98, you know, with no investment return, they're probably going to have to target between 93 and 94. And in order to get that, you know, there's only a certain number of levers you can pull. You know, one is effectively sort of uh, more premium, you know, but, but still keeping your claims frequency at the same level. So that will give you more underwriting profit. That's a sort of straightforward binary. The second lever, obviously, is the expense line in terms of doing that. And so, you know, these are all sort of, you know, symptoms and, and sort of derivatives of what happens sort of 
in a hard market. So, you know, certainly in terms of the MGAA insurer partners, you know, there is there still remains a healthy appetite to grow. You know, there's capacity there to sort of be obtained with the right business model and with all the, the necessary attributes that an MGA should should be able to display. I just still feel that, you know, insurers looking at marginal portfolios, you know, the tolerance levels of re-underwriting those marginal portfolios and maintaining them, or sorry, retaining them, that tolerance is a lot smaller in a hard market because, you know, they are getting organic rate growth, therefore organic premium growth. So, you know, the question is, well, do we really need to retain this marginal portfolio when we are getting a nice tailwind of uh, rating increases across the rest of our portfolio? And the answer to that is no. You know, the flip side in a soft or passive uh, rate environment is that the tolerance level to re-underwrite and retain marginal performing portfolios is higher because if you walk away from 20 million, 25 million, 50 million of underperforming or marginally underperforming business, that has a massive impact on your expense line. And, and as we know with any P&L, you know, you, know, you can't, you can shift premium far quicker than you can necessarily shift expense. Mm. And, and, uh, and that's why they, they tend to go hand in hand. And which markets do you think are going to be most affected by that? Uh, I think the, the, without doubt, as we sit here, you know, the financial lines market is the one which is, which is particularly, I would call it brutal currently. So it has, you know, really significant weight increases. You know, my members in terms of MGAs, you know, they're seeing doubling, tripling of their premiums, you know, with no real change in their risk. And they're also seeing a contraction of capacity as well. And in addition to that, they're seeing COVID uh, restrictions in their worthiness as well. So there's, there's, you know, that that's a real challenging uh, market. You know, again, as an MGAA, we're talking to a number of organisations who we hope will be able to provide, you know, opportunities for our members to perhaps go and talk to them in regards to sort of their insurance requirements. But, you know, to be fair, Sarah, it's, it, it is a brutal situation out there at the moment. And I would add that no, to my knowledge, no one is actually what I would call breaking cover. So no one's being opportunistic in terms of trying to write, write that type of business at the expense of others. You know, it, it's just a, a clear sort of wave of rate increases, capacity contraction and restriction of wordings. So, so, so not an easy market as, as we speak. I do wonder, not just in the insurance uh, industry, but as a as a global economy, how how long we're going to be, I say, paying for the pandemic, but how long those effects are going to be seen. And I suspect that my kids will probably uh, feel the effects when they're starting to buy their first properties or you know that kind of stuff. So it's incredibly scary, but also mind boggling when you look at what's happened in the last twelve months. You couldn't write it. It's it's insane. No, no, you're right. It, it, it is a concern for, as you say, your children. You know, my 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 grandchildren probably sort of the next. You know, how that it's all going to be paid for. And, and you know, whilst I'm no doubt there will be, there will be an economy bounce. You know, once we get back to to normal. You know, if you look at the hospitality sector in particular, you know, and I'd expand that to sort of the the arts, cinemas, and whatever. 
you know, you know, I believe people will quickly look to go back and and sort of because everyone's been locked down and not being able to go out. But you know, you can't replace what's happening. Well, what if that's fifteen months before that gets back to any normality? You know, that's going to take a long time to recover. And and as we know, some some businesses just won't have the cash flow or support to be able to re-emerge. You know, uh, stronger. You know, they they just won't. So it, it's a real shame. We're just thinking back to the beginning of our conversation today, talking about uh, sort of the footfall and the square mile and people won't be going back to the nine to five in the office. The property market, commercial property market is going to take a hit. And if I think, you know, on a granular level, uh, one of the things that we invested in uh, just before Christmas was, I say we, I mean, Sarah, family, personal life, was a giant 20 foot inflatable cinema which hooks up via Bluetooth to everything. So it was my daughter's birthday on Tuesday and we, we, it was too cold to put it out in the garden, but we put it in the conservatory and it's huge. We have now a cinema at home. Fantastic. Uh, you know, it was, and how many are you, people... Are you, selling, are you selling popcorn and hot dogs and everything else? Like that? As you, you go, you I mean, it, it could be business 4.0. Who knows? <laughs> On uh, on Christmas Eve, we uh, we put it up in our close. So we live in a, a, a close and all the neighbours came out. And we all sat on our own boundaries and watched Frozen with all the kids. Fantastic. That's it fantastic. Was, yeah, it was great. But those kind of changes and mindset changes have been, have done a 180 degree shift on so many things from commercial property through to whether I'll pay 50 quid for the five of us to go to a cinema again. Yeah. Um, in, yeah. You know. And that type of reframing will also be playing out across the next three, four years. Yeah, I, I'd say, you know, you, you mentioned construction in the city and, and, you know, there's, you know, the, the number of cranes, if you, you get high up in anywhere in the city, you just look across the sort of landscape is enormous, the number of cranes where office sort of buildings are going up. And I, I just I just wonder, I just can't see how they're going to be filled. You know, I, I just feel they may have to convert them to... To flats or, or apartments, I just can't. I just can't see them. You know, I, I know of a number of our members, you know, certainly supplier members who've got very significant office space in in London, and they've been. They told me quite clearly that their plan is they they don't need to go back, and, and if they get the chance to get out of their lease, or or certainly one of them said that their, their lease actually runs out next this year. Now, yeah, this year, he said they won't go back, and and that's a three hundred FTE office you know so it's it's I, you know, I, I don't know I'm not an expert in that it's probably an article I need to read from someone who's an expert to see what how they predict uh, you know sort of commercial property uh, you know for the next sort of three to five years you know sort of you know what the rent what the rents will be and you know is there a future in it It'd be interesting but I tell you even on that note the variance of people's opinions, the experts' opinions on what's going to happen is so wide. I don't think anybody, nobody, do you remember in January last year, 2020, we're all watching the pandemic play out in Wuhan and going, oh, it's not very good, is it? Oh dear, I'll carry on with my, (laughs) you just would not have written it. Yeah. So expert, non-expert, subjective, objective, based on statistics, which my argument would be is always subjective anyway because you pull yeah. them from wherever you want to to crazy times crazy crazy times you're right you're right <laughs> what's what, what certain is that someone will get it wrong <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yes a hundred percent mike yeah. i really appreciate your time today that's um, been really really interesting so really thank you very, it, very so. much really enjoy Cheers. it thanks very much all the best thank you for listening to today's episode 
If you have enjoyed what you have heard, have any questions or feedback, please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you. If you would like further information on how Boston Tullus Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.